Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Sorry to interrupt. Some of you are having a good time, and that's good. It's good to be uh, back together with you after a week vacation. Uh, it's nice to be back, and uh, thank you all for your kind notes. Many of you sent me notes, uh, stay longer. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what you said. But uh, so anyway, pleasure to be back. Let's pray. Today we get the, the opportunity to start a new book of our Bibles. Uh, yeah. You may not woohoo once you hear which book. And, uh, we're going to study the book of Nahum uh, the next couple of weeks. Wow. Um, somebody read ahead. Let's pray. Next couple of weeks. Wow. Um, somebody read ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that opportunity to, this opportunity to dig into the word. We thank you for the opportunity to have the scriptures. And Lord, we know, uh, we know that the book of Nahum is a book that oftentimes uh, is not read and considered and uh, meditated on and uh, much attention is given to, but we do believe that all scripture is profitable, that it's useful to teach us, to correct us, to train us, and, and we delight in that. And so, Lord, we come uh, humble, we come obedient, we come ready to receive from you. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to us through your holy word, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, can I just make a quick announcement? Um, as you may know, we have neighbors here in this facility. Um, they have announced they're moving out September 1st, um, and they, they found another facility that they're going to be moving into, and we're, we're very happy for them. They believe that's going to be very good for them, I have to say. <laughs> very happy for us uh, as well. Um, so we wish them well, certainly. So we've been given the opportunity did we turn this off all of a sudden? Uh, to, we've been given the opportunity to acquire additional space um, here uh, upstairs, uh, and we are praying about that. Um, that obviously will require uh, an additional investment on our part, both in doing all of the work, paying for all the work, and then the monthly payment that would, would go with that. Um, so I just make you aware of that. Uh, if that's something you think the Lord would have us to do, then get ready to help uh, in, that, in that process. Um, we, we would much prefer to do as much work as we can on our own without having to hire people. So, um, because that costs money, and I hate spending money. Um, so that's our desire. So anyway, pray about that. Um, we'll mention we're going to be outside next week. Uh, if there's an interest, we'll do another baptism. So if you've been thinking about getting baptized and you didn't, we're not just going to set it up for no particular reason. So if you have been thinking about that, would you come see us, talk with us? We, we prefer that anyway so that we can have an opportunity to make sure you understand what's happening and what's going on there. So please just come see myself, Will, um, and uh, we will um, we'll talk you through that process. Well, we are in the book of Nahum. We spent, it actually ended up, I went back and counted, 70 weeks in the book of Acts, uh, and we're going to be in the book of Nahum for two weeks. Our general plan is this, so that you can be aware, uh, is we came from the New Testament, we went, we're going to go back now into the Old Testament and continue to look at some of the books of the minor prophets. Um, my plan is that we're going to do uh, the book of Nahum, the book of Ze uh, Habakkuk, and the book of uh, Zephaniah uh, together. And so I suspect that'll take us a couple of months or, or more, uh, and then 
uh, likely head back into the New Testament to do another one of the books there. Our plan, our goal, our desire is to go through the entire Bible um, so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work, uh, which is what we're promised if we study the scriptures. And so we want to study them, we want to apply them to our lives. But today we go back to the Old Testament. If you're not familiar, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 27 books that are in the New. Again, if you're not familiar, uh, the New Testament covers the period uh, of Jesus Christ and the generation essentially that followed him, the first church. Uh, the Old Testament covers a period of about 3,600 years from the creation uh, all the way to about 400 years before the time of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is divided into a number of different sections. A, a lot of the material is historic. First five books of our Old Testament are the historic books written by Moses. We call those the Pentateuch, Penta five, the first five books. Then you have another 12 books that are historical books. Then you move into what are called the poetic books, books like the Book of Psalms or Song of Solomon or Proverbs. Some of those books make up our poetic books. And then you get into the books of prophecy. And so the Old Testament isn't entirely chronological. The beginning of it is chronological, those history books, but the prophetic books, you have to almost remember and kind of piece them into where do they fit in the history of Israel. So if you look at the historical books, you're starting from about 4000 BC uh, and you're going to cover all the way to about 500 BC. And those prophetic books that we have, there's 17 total prophetic books in the Old Testament, they fit around uh, in the various historical places. Does that make sense? No charts today. Hopefully I'm explaining it clear enough. The 17 prophetic books, five of them are what we call major prophets. Not because, so much because of the information being more important than, say, the minor prophets, but typically because of the size of the book itself. You have a book like Isaiah with 66 chapters, a book like Jeremiah with 52 chapters. They're much larger. They tend to be called the major prophets excuse me, the major prophets. The minor prophets, there are 12 of them. And those minor prophet books are divided up into three sections themselves. And they all uh, revolve around what are called the periods of the exile or the exilic period. Maybe from your study of uh, history, Israel's history, remember that during their history, there were two instances where foreign nations came in took the people captive, or some of the people captive, and led them away into exile. And so the minor prophet books all have to deal with the exilic period in Israel's history. And some of those come before the exile actually occurred, and we call them, what do you think? We call them pre-exilic. Some of them occurred during the time of the exile, we call them exilic, and some of them are after the exile had already begun and those are called post-exilic. The book we're about to study is the book of Nahum. It's kind of a tricky one because it's all three of those things. It's pre-exile, it's exile, and it's post-exile. And the reason being is it falls in a period of history, in Israel's history, where the northern kingdom had already been taken away into captivity, but the southern kingdom had not been taken away into captivity. And it falls right in between those. And so it's pre-exilic, post-exilic, and exilic all at the same time. Is that going to change your lives? Um, probably not, but it's uh, good background information for you to know. 
I mentioned those two ex periods of exile. One was at the hand of a group of people called the Assyrians. The other was at the group of people called the Babylonians. The Assyrians came into the northern kingdom, and Assyria, basically, if you're familiar with the Fertile Crescent, the Fertile Crescent being that area of land north of today, what is Saudi Arabia, sort of forms an upside-down upside U um, there. The Assyrians came from that area, places like Iraq and Iran today, came from that area, and they attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Israel had divided into two kingdoms because of a civil war. That took place in the year 722 B.C. The southern kingdom is going to be attacked by the Babylonians, also who made up the area of what is today Iraq, and they're going to come into the southern kingdom in a series of waves, the first being 606 B.C., the, second being, the last being 586 B.C., so we'll just say 600 B.C. They attacked the southern kingdom of Israel and take the people away into captivity. The book of Nahum, as I said, falls right between those two accounts. And so Nahum's prophecy, this man we're going to look at today, this book we're going to look at, Nahum's prophecy is presented to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is already taken away and off into captivity, but it's going to be presented to the southern kingdom all about somebody else, though. That make sense? And we'll talk about that as we continue to move forward. If you look, please, at the first verse of Nahum. And if you've been looking all this time for this small little book in what we call the clean pages of our Bible, please, there's no shame in looking in your table of contents. You just go to the front of your book. There it is. It tells you the page, and you'll be at the page you need to be. But Nahum is a small little book in a section of our Bibles that we, we tend to not be in very often. And so you may have trouble finding it if you're just flipping through. But I've given you 10 minutes. You should have gotten there. So here we go. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. It begins this way. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. All right? It's an oracle of, uh, concerning Nineveh, and it's the book of the vision of a man by the name of Nahum of Elkosh. We learn a couple of things there. Now, first, the, depending on the version that you're reading, my version, it uses the word oracle. Some versions, some popular versions use the word a prophecy concerning Nineveh. Some use the word a message or a pronouncement concerning Nineveh. I really like some of the older versions, like the King James Version on this one. It reads this way. This is the New King James. It says, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum. And I, I like that. I prefer that in this instance because what we're going to see is God places or has placed a burden on the heart of this man by the name of Nahum that he was to go and to share with the Jewish people. It was a burden against the city of Nineveh. And we don't know a lot about this Nahum that received this burden. It tells us here that he's from Elkosh. We don't know where Elkosh is. Historians, uh, archaeologists, you know, people that dig into these things, they don't really know where that is. Jewish tradition has suggested that the city that had been named Elkush was later changed to a new name, the new name being the city of Capernaum. And we do know where the city of Capernaum is. It's on the northern coast of the Galilean Sea. It's where Jesus spent so much of his time when he was here on the earth. The city, or the word Capernaum, is literally translated uh, as the village of Nahum. 
And so tradition suggests to us that this is where uh, this man lived. They called it Elkish before, but later on they changed it. But again, we don't necessarily know, nor does it really, really matter to us. What's more significant is the message that this man had to share. Again, it says that he had a burden from the Lord against the city of Nineveh. Now, we do know quite a bit about the city of Nineveh. We've been introduced to the city of Nineveh in our Old Testament on multiple occasions. We've seen the name. We, uh, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, so we've heard about the Assyrians as well. The word Nineveh, it appears 19 different times in our Bibles. It appears the most times in the minor prophet book of Jonah, which we've uh, studied together and a lot of people are familiar with. It appears the second most number of times in the book of Nahum. And so what do we know about Nineveh from our Bibles? Well, again, we know it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. We know that it was the largest city of the Assyrian Empire. It was actually the largest city assembled in the world in that particular day. That make sense? Um, so it was a tremendously large city. In the book of Journey, it talks about a three days journey to get from one side of the city of Nineveh to the other side. And if we estimate 10 or 12 miles of walking a day, we're talking about a city 30 miles or more in circumference. It was a large, large city. The city or the empire, uh, the Assyrian Empire, it boasted the strongest military power in the world. No, listen, for 700 years. You know, so we talk about you know, the might of the United States of America or something, and you know, we're, we're the only superpower left, or whatever that might be, 200 years. 700 years is the length of the, uh, the strength of the empire of Assyria. Assyria w did eventually fall. We know when it did. It was 612 BC, and it's called the Battle of Nineveh. And the book of Nahum is all about that battle, uh, or that coming battle. We're never told exactly when this book was written, but we do have some clues as to when it was written. First, we, as I said, historically we know when the Battle of Nineveh occurred, 612 BC. This book is all about that coming battle, so it had to be written before 612 BC. If you flip over to chapter 3, verse 8 for a moment, you'll see there that another city is mentioned. It says, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? And so on the southern border of Egypt and Ethiopia in that day, the empire of Ethiopia, or Cush, there was this great city, the city of Thebes. The reference here that is being made by Nahum is even that city fell. And we know when that city fell. That city fell in 663 B.C., which means that this book was written sometime between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C. All right, you got all that with me here? And again, that is post-Assyrian exile, pre-Babylonian exile. It fits right in between those two here. I mentioned a moment ago the book of Jonah. Jonah also addresses the people of Nineveh. Jonah was written about 100 years before the book of Nahum. If you remember the story of Jonah, real quickly, God told a prophet named Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. I want you to tell them judgment is coming. Nineveh said, or excuse me, Jonah said, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. 
Now, you would think, Jonah hated the people of Nineveh, you would think he'd love to go there. Oh, I can't wait to tell them they're about to get it. But Jonah knew God. And Jonah knew, if I go there and I tell them judgment is coming, and they get scared, and they listen to me, and they repent, I know you enough, God, you're going to forgive them, and I don't want you to forgive them. And so, if you know the story, Jonah went uh, the complete opposite direction of the city of Nineveh. Well, God orchestrated circumstances to make sure Jonah got back to Nineveh and that Jonah wanted to preach to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah was right. The people repented. The people saw the judgment was coming, and they said, perhaps God will forgive us if we repent of our sin. And God did. And he stayed their judgment. That was about 100 years before where we are now with this book of Nineveh. And if you've forgotten, the Ninevites during the time of Jonah, they were wicked. They were cruel. And here they are now, a hundred years later, just as wicked, just as deprived. The reform that had sort of taken place in them and in their society, things kind of went back to the way they always were. It, it reminds me a lot of when a person is, is shocked into morality. And, you know, they, they sort of have this scare moment, and God, I promise I'll never do that sort of thing again. And then as things start to get comfortable again and go back to normal, they find themselves right where they were before or even in a worse place than where they were before. That's what's going on with the city of Nineveh. And so 100 years old, earlier, the message that God gave the prophet Jonah to warn the people of coming judgment, the people are right back where they were before. And so we have here in the book of Nahum if you will, the sequel to the book of Jonah. All right? It's about 100 years later, uh, and let's dive in. W one more thing, please. I'm sorry. There's three chapters in the book of Nahum. Very easily, you can summarize these three chapters this way. Chapter 1, Nineveh's going to fall. Chapter 2 is how it's going to fall. What are the circumstances going to be? And then chapter 3, why Nineveh fell. All right, very simple. Nineveh's going to fall, chapter 1, how they're going to fall, chapter 2, and why they fell, chapter 3. So let's begin. I'm going to start with chapter 1, verse 1. We already read it, but we'll read it again. It says, Now an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkish. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he keeps wrath for his enemies. This is exciting positive learning this morning. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in, in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel, they wither. The bloom of Lebanon, it withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him the world, and all who dwell in it. And so he begins. And Nahum begins by reminding us that the Lord is a jealous God and an avenging God. He begins by reminding us that the Lord is going to pour out his wrath on sin and all of, all of those that come against God's people. That's what verse 2 is very clear in saying. The Lord is jealous and avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. Now, truth be told, that is not an aspect of the character of God that I think any of us like to sit and consider and to dwell on. Certainly not applied to my own life. 
I think we much prefer to think of those character traits of God that are mentioned in the next verse. Look at verse 3, where it speaks of the Lord being slow to anger. It speaks of the Lord being great in power. That's what we like to dwell on, those character traits. The Bible teaches us that God is a God of love. Amen? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The Bible also teaches us that God is light. What that means is that God is pure, that God is holy, that God is righteous. He shines light into the darkness. We read this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so we have one place where it clearly tells us God is love. We have another place, same book of the Bible, that tells us that God is light. And so, as full of love as he is, again, it says he is love, we must always remember that he is also light, and that therefore he must judge sin. And we have a message that goes around in the church and outside of the church, in our society, that has this general idea of this God that is out there, is that there is a God that is out there that is all loving, stop the sentence, and that's all we want to consider. But the reality is the scripture teaches that while God is love, at the same exact time, he is light, and that he must judge sin. We think of those as two mutually exclusive things. If God really loved me, he'd just let it go by, no big deal. If God really loved me, he would just say, all right, try better next time. But the reality is the nature of who God is and the character of who God is is that sin must be judged. And so God is love, and he is a God of love and mercy, but he is also a God of wrath against sin. There's a well-known Bible verse that's found in the book of 1 Peter. It says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Have you heard that Bible verse before? Right? It's pretty well known. That he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient. God doesn't wish that any would perish. God desires that all would come to the place of repentance. Those are ideas that I think every one of us readily embraces. We love those ideas. We love sharing that message with other people. Even the secular world embraces that message. But notice how that verse continues. So that's 2 Peter chapter 3. I just read verse 9. Verse 10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come. And if you've read any parts of the Bible uh, significantly, you, you know that the day of the Lord refers to the day of the Lord's judgment. And so even that verse which talks about the patience of the Lord and the love of the Lord and the desire of the Lord, that everyone would repent and that no one would perish, it continues right on, and the next thing that it speaks about is the judgment of the Lord. And so it's very true that the Lord desires that none would perish. The reality is, many will. And if you believe the words of Jesus, the reality is that many, many will perish. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that lead to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. The Lord is slow to anger. Unfortunately, many people mistake the patience of God for apathy. 
as if he doesn't really care about sin. The book of Nahum, among other things, should remind us that the Lord very much cares about sin and the effect of sin. And so although the people of Nineveh had responded to God initially when Jonah shared with them, they subsequently returned to their evil practices. And for a hundred years, God was slow to anger, as verse 3 points out. He's about now, through the prophet Nahum, to demonstrate that he is also great in power. Verse 3 says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And so Nahum asked the question in verse 6, who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of God's anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. He asked that question, who can stand before the Lord in his anger? And the answer is no one. No one can stand before God's indignation. No one can stand or uh, endure the heat of God's anger. Now notice verse 7. It seems out of place. We're talking about God's judgment, God's wrath, God's vengeance, who can stand, nobody can stand. Then you look at verse 7, and the Lord is good. It doesn't seem to fit, does it? Anybody? It seems a little bit out of place, right? Let's read the whole verse. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So in the context of the previous verses, and then you go on and you read the rest of the book, Verse 7 just seems completely out of place. The reality is those words, verse 7, are not directed toward Nineveh. So this whole book is about Nineveh, but it was delivered to, as I said earlier, the southern kingdom, the people of Judah. And so verse 7 is directed to the Jewish people, to the people of Judah. To them, Nahum is saying, the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The word Nahum, the name, it's a Hebrew word which has come to be a name. None of us probably are using it, but in their day it was. But it's a Hebrew word which means comfort. The word Nahum means comfort. That's why the city of Nahum is the village of comfort or the village of Nahum. And so the word means comfort. If you've read the whole book, some of you like to read ahead before we come together, which is always a good practice, even though I tell you often, don't read ahead because you'll ruin the surprise. Um, but it is a good practice. If you've read ahead, you know the message of the book of Nahum is not a very comforting message. It's a book about the total and irrevocable judgment upon the city of Nineveh. It is coming. That's what the book is about. That's not a very comforting message necessarily, unless you are of the people of Judah, who constantly lived in fear that the Assyrians were going to come down and that they were going to get you. You were constantly in fear of their invasion and their brutal captivity, which they would lead you and your children and your wives off into. And so for the people of Judah to hear that they were going, that Assyria was going to be judged and that they would no longer be a threat, that would have been wonderfully comforting news to the people of Judah or the Jewish people. It's been said of the inhabitants of Nineveh, quote, that there has not been a more cruel people in the history of the world. That's the people of Nineveh. In all the ancient world, no single city had matched the Assyrian capital in 
calculated cruelty. I say calculated cruelty because they were so incredibly cruel against those they defeated with a purpose that other cities, other nations would hear how cruel they actually were and they would give up before any shot had to be fired. It made conquering other places all that much easier. This is what some of their own rulers have written about how they treated some of the places that they conquered. This was found on an Assyrian monument after it had been dug up by archaeologists. It said this, A great number of them in the land of Kirhi I slew. 260 of their fighting men I cut down with the sword. I cut off their heads and I formed them into pillars. What they would do at the entrance to these destroyed cities is they would set up all these skulls in sort of like a pyramid. And then anybody that went by that city would see all of what the Assyrians had done. He said, uh, I'm assuming this is how you say the name, Bubu, the son of Buba, I flayed in the city of Arbella, and I spread his skin upon the city wall. What that means is they skinned him alive. And then they hung, I don't, some of you are smiling. I'm trying to figure out what is the matter with some of you. Um, but they would hang their skin upon the city wall. Here's another conquest that the Assyrians wrote about. This isn't other people exaggerating. This is what these people wrote about. This was the city known as Suru. It said, I flayed all the chief men in the city of Suru who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar. They buried them alive. Some I impelled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round about the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I flayed, cut their skins off. I, I spread their skins upon the walls. I cut off the limbs of their officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled against me. Here's another conquest. This was a, a place called Tela, or Tila. 3,000 of their people in the city of Tela, I, warriors, I put to the sword. Many captives from among them I burned with fire. From some, I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others, I cut off their noses, their ears, their fingers, and of many, I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of the heads, and I bound their heads to post round about the city. Right, so you get the idea. They were, the Assyrians were cruel and brutal, and they conquered cities as much as through fear of what they would do than what they actually did to those particular cities. And then they boasted of that cruelty. That's what they were doing in jo Jonah's day. That's why Jonah said, I don't want to go to these people. But he went and they repented of it. Here they're doing it again and they're doing it even worse. And so the people of Judah had very good reason to fear the Assyrians. We already learned the Assyrians already conquered much of the known world at that time. 700 years is the most powerful empire in the world. I mentioned earlier how they already attacked the northern kingdom of the Jews and led the people away into captivity. That was 722 B.C. In addition to that, and you can read these examples in your Bible, they had already begun subjugating the southern kingdom. By subjugating, they didn't take them away captive, but they, they basically uh, they came to them and said, look, we're about to attack you, but if you pay us money, that's called tribute, we won't attack you. And for decades, close to centuries, the southern kingdom was paying money to the Assyrians that they wouldn't come in and attack them. And that's what Assyria always did. They'd first collect you know, money from you. We won't come in and attack. But then when they got strong enough, they'd go in and they'd attack and they'd destroy them. And so the, the southern kingdom of Judah is essentially just waiting for that to occur. 
Second Kings chapter 15, it tells us about the Assyrian king, a man by the name of Tiglath-Pileser. And Tiglath-Pileser required tribute of Judah's king, Azariah. You can read about it in 2 Kings 15. That was about 735 B.C. 2 Kings chapter 18 tell of a similar payment that the new Assyrian king, this time a man, maybe you know the name, his name is in the Bible, it's uh, the name Sennacherib, and how Sennacherib required of, of uh, Judah's new king, you know his name, Hezekiah, that he pay him tribute. That's found in 2 Kings. I wanted to read it to you, 18. It says, now the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, uh, and from the doorpost, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid them, and he gave that gold to the king of Assyria. And so, the, if you just follow the normal course of action of the Assyrians, first they come against you, they threaten you, they collect money from you, we won't bother you as long as you pay your, your fee, your fine, or whatever, but eventually they're going to come in. And so the people of Judah had every real reason to fear that their destruction was imminent, and it was going to be a brutal attack against them by the Assyrian people. And so when Nahum, what does the word Nahum mean, class? When the comforter, when he comes and he says to them that the people you're so afraid of coming down and skinning you alive, they're going to be destroyed and be no more. Aren't those words of comfort to you? Aren't you thinking something to the effect of God is good, that he's going to protect us from these people? And so they rejoice in that. Verse 8 continues, speaking through Nahum. It says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, there's an interesting thing about the book of Nahum. Historians, secular historians, doubted uh, that there even was a city of Nahum because archaeologically they couldn't find it. It was so destroyed that it was unable to be found. And so pretty soon what archaeologists and historians began to say is, you know, we're not really even sure there was a Nineveh. That might be, you know, like one of those fanciful cities that the Bible has, you know, this kind of thing. Interesting. In 1848, there was a guy uh, that was in that region of the world. Today, the area of Nineveh is, primar Nineveh is primarily the area of Mosul in Iraq, there were some battles in the Battle of Mosul um, in the, the Persian Gulf War and all those wars. Um, that's where it was. And so some guy was out there digging, and he hit something, and they did a little more digging. And the next thing you know, two years later, the entire city of Nineveh, this enormous city, was on earth. That was 1848. And so for years, historians have been saying, we doubt there even exists a city of Nineveh. That's funny, because the Bible was pretty clear that there was one. Uh, then what is interesting is if you read Nahum's prophecy, he is incredibly precise with the way that Nineveh falls and the things that he mentions are going to happen. And so then many of those same uh, critics are saying, you know, 
this book could have never been written when it was written because he just knows the facts too well. It had to be written after the fact. So at one point, they don't believe it at all. Another point, it's too true, and so therefore it can't be true at all. It just seems to me it's somebody that doesn't want to believe that it's part of our scriptures. But here we read in verse 8, it says, With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries. He, notice there he talks about an overflowing flood that will make a complete end of the, Siri, the city of Nineveh. That's exactly how the impenetrable city of Nineveh. Nineveh was actually surrounded by three sets of walls that were around it. Huge walls in height and in width. It was also up uh, on a hill of some sorts. Nations and cities have tried to come against Nineveh for hundreds of years and had no uh, effect whatsoever. And here it speaks of this overflowing flood that will make a complete end of the city. That's, again, it's exactly how the city of Nineveh fell when unusually heavy spring rains came into that region of the earth. It caused the waters of the Tigris River, which the city of Nineveh was built on. It ran right through the city. It caused the waters to rise up to undermine the city walls. The city walls eventually collapsed, and then in the southern portion of the, uh, of the city, the Babylonians just marched right into the city to destroy it. There was a breach in the walls. What did the Lord do? He made a complete end of Nineveh via, verse 8 there, an overwhelming flood. Notice what verse 9 and following tell us. It says, what do you, what, do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Notice it speaks there of uh, like drunkards as they drink. Again, remarkable precision. For as the Babylonians in the south, the Medes, you may have heard of them, in the north were besieging the city of uh, Nineveh, and they were turned back. They had been doing it every, basically every spring for three years in a row, and they kept getting turned back. As they were besieging them this third time, the inhabitants of the city, led by their king, decided it would be a fun idea. You know what? They're never going to get in. Why don't we just celebrate? Why don't we just party? Why don't we just have the times of our lives and essentially laugh at them and their feeble attempt to get into our city? And so next thing you know, the rains are coming down, and the rains are coming down, and the rains are coming down, and the wall is undermined, and the wall falls, and the Babylonians... After three weeks of partying in the city, the Babylonians come into the city and they find a bunch of drunk men, a bunch of drunk soldiers that had no ability whatsoever to fight back, and they were destroyed essentially in an instance. 612 B.C., the Battle of Nineveh, you can read about it in your history books. It went down exactly as God revealed to Nahum that it would go down, and the city fell. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Remember, he wrote this somewhere, we'll just say around 650, when Assyria was at the height of its power. It had been the strongest military on the earth for 700 years, conquering whoever they wanted to conquer and doing most of it through fear and intimidation than actual fighting. And yet to them, Nahum says, your city's about to fall. You will be cut down, and you will, be passed, you will pass away. 
The Lord speaking to the Jews, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke, the Assyrian yoke, from off you and will burst your bonds apart. And so there two people are being addressed or spoken about. The they, that's the Ninevites, the people of Assyria, and the you, that's the Jewish people. Again, written to the Ninevites at the height of their power. And also written to the people of Judah, maybe at a, a low point in their society. Seeing it's just a matter of time before the Assyrians come in and attack us. Hezekiah the king taking all the gold that he can find, even from places at the temple, and taking it and giving it. Please, is this enough? Crying out to the Lord. I, I encourage you to read 2 Kings chapter 19. It's also in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 35 or so, 32, something like that, where he cries out to the Lord, and he says, Lord, you got to help us. He, he received a letter that basically said, we're coming to get you, and he put that in front of the Lord, and the Lord answered uh, Hezekiah's prayer. It's a great addition to our study here. But verse 14 continues. It says, now the Lord has given commandment about you, talking to Assyria, no more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. That word vile is interesting. There's a root of it that's similar to the word in the book of Daniel. That uh, You remember the handwriting on the wall? Many, many, tekel upharsin. That word tekel, um, you've been found, you've been weighed and found wanting. Like you don't measure up. That word weighed there is the same root as this word here when it talks about vile. They didn't measure up. They've been assessed. They've been evaluated. And the Lord said, I'm going to bring judgment against you. He says, uh, addressing the Assyrian king in verse 14, the Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall you be perpetuated on the earth. And again, so thoroughly was the city destroyed that Bible skeptics began to say there never even was a city of Nineveh until in 1848 something or another, they, they found it. Those that had troubled so many, and particularly the context of our scriptures, those that had troubled the Jewish people, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, were about to come to a complete end. And so no wonder, look at verse 15, no wonder Nahum calls this good news. Certainly not good news to the people of Nineveh, but good news to the Jewish people. He says, behold, Upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Paul the Apostle quotes that portion of the verse, and he applies it to the gospel and those that bring the gospel forth. The word good news means gospel. But here the good news is in reference to the fact that the enemy of the Jews is going to be taken out so that they, can't, they can no longer hurt the Jews. And again, if you're living in Judah in constant fear of the Assyrians coming down and cutting your skin off your living body and destroying your children in the streets and taking your wives away captive, then certainly it's good news, isn't it? Thank you. Oh, my gosh. People. Well, I told you, chapter 1, it deals with uh, the nation uh, or the, the city of Nineveh that they would fall. Chapter 2 goes on to explain how, uh, and then chapter 3 will tell us why they fell. And so we're going to hold off on going into 2. We'll finish the book next week, chapter 2 and chapter 3, looking at the how and the why. But let me just make this quick point of application for all of us here. 
I think that the, the book of Nahum is in our Bibles for a greater reason than simply for us to, to historically learn you know, some neat event and wow, that's so neat how God can predict those things. I think it's in our Bibles for more than that. And I think it's in our Bibles as a reminder to us of a few different things. Number one is that God deals with sin and he judges sin. And if you look at the people of Nineveh, where Jonah first came to them, there was a period in their lives where it seemed that the message of God was resonating in their hearts and they responded to it. But they very quickly went back to where they had once been. And I'm reminded in our Christian walks, something that I've observed in other people's lives and even in my own life, I've observed it, where God will put kind of his finger on an area of my life, maybe you've had a situation, you go to a retreat of some sorts, or you, you leave a church service and like, you know what, today's the day. Never gonna do that thing again, or I'm gonna change this, or I'm gonna change that. And you repent, much like the people of Nineveh did. And maybe you're pretty good for two weeks, a couple of months, a few years. And then you slowly begin to return to where you once were. May I just remind you that God judges sin and he will deal with it. And I'm not saying whether you were a Christian or you weren't a Christian or you knew the Lord or you didn't know the Lord or you had salvation or didn't lose your salvation. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, but I can tell you this, God judges sin. And so I would encourage each one of us in our lives is to maybe think back to some areas that perhaps God has spoken to us in the past about, that maybe now we're living in some compromise with, and put yourself in the place of Nineveh. The Lord is slow to anger, but he is great in power, and he will deal with that. And that's a painful place to be, especially for some of us here that maybe don't know Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the ultimate judgment for sin is hell. It's separation from God for all eternity. And we're kind of living right now in the days of Jonah, where there's this message of forgiveness, there's this message of grace, there's this message of mercy. And the people of Nineveh had the opportunity to repent, and God's judgment was stayed. But the time is coming... When every one of us, either because we come to the end of our lives or because this world in which we live, we come to the end of this world, the time is coming when we will transition from the days of, of Jonah to the days of Nahum, where judgment will be meted out. And so if you've never come into a relationship with God, there's only one way you can do that. Because all of us, every one of us, are worthy of God's judgment. Every one of us have walked outside of the will of God. Every one of us, maybe some of us more so than others, but every one of us has rebelled against what God desires for each of our lives. And so every one of us deserves to be judged. But God is so gracious, so merciful, so kind. He doesn't say, I don't worry about it. Rather, what he says is, let me take care of it. And what the scripture teaches, we sang earlier about justice and mercy, that it meets on the cross. What the scripture teaches is that God poured out his wrath on his own son. 
that his own son took up our cause, went to the cross so that he could be judged in our place. That's mercy. That's grace. That's the kindness of God. God is love. He loves us incredibly. Desires to be in relationship with us. God is light. He's pure. He's holy. He's just. And he can't be in the presence of sin. God's got a problem because those two things seem to be contradictory, don't they? But not in the perfectness of God. And so he can... Come, he can bring those two concepts which seem to be opposing together and deal with our sin problem. He did so at the cross. If you've never begun a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, it starts at the cross. It starts by recognizing that's the only place where my sin can be paid for. I received the free gift. I'd love to talk with you more about that when service is over. I know a lot of you are familiar with that idea already and have received the work of Christ in your life. Rejoice. In that, if you're playing with sin, stop it. Jesus Christ set you free from the penalty of sin. But I think even more importantly, this side of heaven, than the from the power of sin. None of us have to walk in sin anymore. We can fix our eyes firmly on Christ and run our race unhindered, as the scripture said. Laying aside every sin that entangles us. Let's do that. I think the Lord likes that. And I think it's good for us to do that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your prophet Nahum. Lord, for being faithful to you. Lord, we thank you for this message of comfort. And Lord, we thank you for the message of the scripture that can bring comfort to every one of our hearts and minds here, our souls. Because every one of us knows, as the scripture says, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us knows the reality of Paul's words, that the wages of sin is death. But Lord, that verse continues, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so Lord, every one of us can have our sin dealt with this morning. And I pray that that indeed would be the case. Lord, I pray also for those of us that are in relationship with you and perhaps have been playing around, perhaps have been slipping back into an area of compromise, going back to a place where we once were. Lord, you tell us in the Proverbs, that's like a dog returning to his vomit. It doesn't make any sense and it's disgusting to do. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would walk out of here some of us maybe, with a heavy sense of conviction. Not so we're driven from you, but that we are driven to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.